Well, welcome back to our series in Ephesians, Connected Through the King. Uh, today our passage is going to be from Ephesians three fourteen to 21. And by way of a little bit of background first, just to remind you, we see that Paul first visited and preached in Ephesus in around AD 52. We can read about it in Acts 19. He ended up staying for two or three years and he proclaimed the gospel. He reasoned with the people there. Um, after he left, we know from his letters that Timothy, uh, from his letters to Timothy, that Timothy had stayed on in Ephesus and pastored the church there for at least another year and a half. And we can read more about some of the issues that the church was facing at that time in Paul's letters to Timothy. Uh, we know from later on in Acts that Paul had been arrested and taken to Rome where he was put in prison. And this didn't stop him uh, proclaiming the gospel either. He was witnessing to his constantly rotating guards and he wrote many letters encouraging the churches that he had planted. And that's what we have here in the book of Ephesians. This letter to the church in Ephesus was written in around 60 AD from that prison in Rome. And it was taken by messenger to the church here in Ephesus. So hopefully you've got a bit of a feel for the place now, which brings us to our passage for today. So Ephesians three fourteen to 21. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, the first thing that I notice about that passage is that it's one of the longest sentences ever, isn't it? Verses 14 to 19 is one great long sentence. There's no full stops there at all. And as as you read it, you can kind of pick up the enthusiasm of Paul. You, you see he's kind of like someone that just can't stop proclaiming and enthusing about the thing that they're passionate about. And that is the gospel, isn't it? Um, it says in one of Peter's letters that Paul's writing is hard to understand and Based on this one long sentence of uh, exclamations, you can you can kind of understand why he said that. So there's lots to unpack. Uh, so I think what we'll do is we'll take a look at this passage just very slowly and systematically to just so we understand what Paul's actually saying here. So from verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So we see that Paul is praying. From whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Well, this may be talking about the fact that all humanity is created by God in his image, but perhaps more likely it's referring to the church family of believers, some of, who have, some of whom have died are in heaven and some of whom remain alive and are in God's family. That's who he's praying to, uh, the God who's uh, the head of every family. Uh, and verse 16, we see that he's praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Um, and How? Through his spirit in your inner being, he says. But so by God's great abundance and glory, he asks that we might be strengthened in our inner beings by his power and through his Holy Spirit. For what purpose? Verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? 
so that you, being grounded and rooted in love, so having Christ's love as our foundation, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He wants us to be enabled to understand and personally experience with all the other believers around us the vast love of Christ. Again, why? It says, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? How can we be filled with the fullness of God? But that's his prayer. He's praying for their spiritual growth, their spiritual maturity, their spiritual understanding, their spiritual love, their spiritual fullness in all the abundance that God is able to give. And then he bursts out in praise, which is almost like a toast to God. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, I've got some short points of note before I get to the real meat of what I want to say. Um, Just a few thoughts of things that sort of jumped out at me as I've looked through the passage. First of all, I think it's interesting that Paul's prayers in his letters are almost always for the spiritual needs of his flock, his church, his children in the faith. Um, how often do we pray this way? Do we, do we mainly focus on the physical and, and emotional issues to the neglect of the spiritual? And I'd say there's nothing wrong with asking God for help in those areas. God cares about those things, is able to help us, and it's right and proper that we should pray for each other's physical and emotional needs. But really, our spiritual lives are the ones that Paul always seems to be most concerned about. And these are the things that will have eternal benefit, aren't they? The second thing to note is the phrase that Paul uses here where he says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I think that's interesting because it's um, it's basically an oxymoron, isn't it? How can you know the love of something that surpasses knowledge? How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? And it's striking, I think, that scripture uses all sorts of literary devices. We have metaphors, similes, analogies, poetry, even sarcasm. And I like the way that scripture sometimes uses oxymorons to express amazing spiritual truths. So when he says to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, how is it? how can it be possible? Well, it can only be possible supernaturally, can't it? We see that Paul also in Philippians mentions the peace of God which transcends all understanding and is able to guard our hearts and minds as we trust in Jesus. And this is the that supernatural peace that enabled Paul to write this letter while chained, awaiting his trial and likely death. It's the same peace that enabled Jesus to get up from praying in Gethsemane, willing to go to the cross. And it's that peace that has enabled Christians over the centuries to sing hymns as they were literally being burned at the stake for their faith. This is what Paul. This is the sort of faith that Paul's praying for for us, for for his church in Ephesus as well. Another thing that struck me as interesting is in verse eighteen. Verse eighteen says that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Well, verse eighteen, the breadth and length and height and depth. The thing that strikes me as odd is that there's four dimensions named there. Um, and knowing how Paul writes, this may well just be an expression of the vastness of God's love that is just piling on the the the, the definitions and dimensions. Um, but it struck me as odd because we live in a three-dimensional world, don't we? I think most people would agree. Or do we? Well, 
I, I'd put it to you that there's a fourth dimension of our lives that we all live and exist in. We move freely around in three dimensions. But the fourth dimension that we all live in and move through is the dimension of time. Um, and it's interesting when you read the, the, the definitions that Paul's giving here. We have breadth, which, which is width of something. We have the height, which is the height of something. We have the depth, which is kind of the 3D-ness of it, how, how deep it goes back. And then he mentions length. Well, length can be uh, a, a physical measurement, can't it? But length is also how we measure time, a length of time. Um, am I seeing too much here? Perhaps I could be. But I do think that it's interesting that the Bible is absolutely clear on numerous occasions that God's promises extend to past, present and future. It says he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And that should give us great assurance as we consider his love for us. And this is what Paul's really aiming at. He, he wants us to understand these things. And whether Paul meant the fourth dimension of time, I don't know. But the Bible is clear that God's love for us won't be less tomorrow than it is today. And we know that he chose to redeem us, knowing all of our failures, even the future ones. And he patiently shapes us in his love in a lifelong process. So I find that hugely encouraging. As we come to the second part of the passage, uh, which is the, the doxology, it's kind of Paul's outpouring of praise. Um. And it says, well, we'll read through it again systematically, shall we? Now to him who is able to do far more, abundantly far more, or in the New King James it says exceedingly abundantly far more, abundantly far more than all we could ask, abundantly far more than all we could ask or even think, Abundantly far more than all we could ask or even think, according to his power that is at work. And I think we can kind of get on board with all of this so far. But then the next phrase says, within us. And I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me go, oh, what really in me? God is going to do all this wondrous work that is more and greater and exceedingly abundantly far more than we could ask or imagine in us. God's going to do that in us. That's what it says. And that's really the purpose of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He wants them to understand and to to be keen to live out what God's willing to do in their lives. Well, looking back over what we've seen already in Ephesians, we have chapters one to three, which are we've seen so far that we're blessed in every spiritual blessing. We've been redeemed. We've been given an inheritance and a treasure that's in heaven. We've been sealed and made secure by his Holy Spirit. We were dead and we've been made alive. God loved us and was and is gracious to us. He seated us with Christ. He's created us for good works. That's a lot of blessings that we've seen in chapters one to three so far, isn't it? And if we were to be able to climb up on a stepladder and look down on the book of Ephesians from above we'd see that Ephesians is kind of split into two quite distinct sections. Chapters 1 to 3 focus on kind of the doctrinal side, our, our position and our riches in Christ and the gospel. And then chapters 4 to 6, um, kind of how that plays out in real life, how we should live in, in Christ as Christians, in society, in our families, in service to our Lord. And this passage that we're looking at today 
I kind of think of as like the ignition or the catalyst that gets it moving. It takes us from the theory side to the practical side. And it's almost like a driving test. I don't know if it's a good illustration or not, but if chapters one to three is the theory test, the stuff that we need to understand about how the Christian life works and where we stand before God, and Ephesians four to six is then the practical application of that knowledge, where the rubber hits the road, if you like, the practical test, then this short passage is almost like the car key that we put in the ignition to get things moving. We, we get in the car, we put the key in, and this is what gets us moving. Um, what we understand, the, the point here really is, um, what the Paul's making is, what we understand and believe about our relationship to God, chapters 1 to 3, and what he's done for us, ought to cause a reaction. A reaction of praise, like Paul pours out, but also a reaction of action and motivation. So I'd encourage us to ask, has our knowledge of what God has done for us had any effect in our lives? How much effect in our lives has it had on a daily basis? Do we understand our position as presented to us in the first three chapters of Ephesians and just see Jesus and our church community as a service that's being provided for us? Or do we see it as something to be involved with actively and to serve in? And our, our pastor Mark, our previous pastor Mark, once noted that um, if the church was a boat, it wouldn't be a pleasure cruiser, it would be a lifeboat. And that's a, that's a good illustration, I think, isn't it? The church has a purpose. We're not just there to enjoy it and indulge ourselves, although um, there are aspects of that. But we're, we're really, our, our purpose is a lifeboat. We're there to, to save lives, to serve and to, we have a mission and a purpose, as, both as individual Christians and as a church community. That's not to say there's never any downtime or time to enjoy with one another. There certainly is, but we have a purpose. And what Paul's presenting to us here is the opportunity to be involved in something that will last into eternity. To bring about things that will change other people's eternities as well. Paul, Paul noted in Ephesians 2 verse 10, he said that, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might hear that and think, well, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Perhaps you want to serve, but you don't know how. Well, if that's you and you're involved with our church, then that's great. Come and see an elder or a deacon and we'll, we'll get you involved practically in something. But if you feel that way, practically, there is some things you can do. Um, I serve as a school governor at our local primary school. And every year we have to do like a skills audit and we have to fill in this questionnaire. We take an honest look at ourselves, our, our areas of expertise, our areas of experience, our natural abilities, the way that we're naturally wired, how much time we have to offer and all these different things and we fill in and we see where our strengths are, when our weaknesses are and uh, it enables us to see a bit more clearly where we might be of use. Um, and we see from the Bible that God's made us all different, we all have an active role to play and if, if one person doesn't play their role then the whole, the whole body suffers doesn't it? Um, well, you might not know what you should do specifically, uh, but I'd like to make clear, really, that there's one ability that we need above all other abilities. One ability, first and foremost. And without this one ability, God will not be able to do anything with us whatsoever. So what is this mysterious ability? Simply, it's availability. If we're not available for God to use us, then what, what can he do? 
We have to make ourselves available. And that's really only the ability that God needs. God's created us for good works to do and he equips us. That's really what the passage is saying to him that is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to his power at work within us. So really Paul's saying the only ability we need is availability. We should make ourselves available for God to be useful. And that doesn't necessarily mean doing anything remarkable. There's a chap that goes to our church and I don't want to embarrass him, but in the summer he was heading off out and I asked where he was going. And he said he was going to put the bins out at the church. I said, oh, I didn't, it hadn't even occurred to me that somebody did that job. He said, yeah, I've done it for years. And it struck me, that's not really a particularly skilled job, is it? And it's not really a, a great, highly recognised job. But it's a, he saw that there was a need and he committed himself to fulfilling that need and dedicated himself to doing that each week, giving his time an effort to just go and do it, a simple job. And that's a way that we're all able to serve, isn't it? Okay, moving on from that aspect of it, I'd like us to consider some of the things that we've we've seen that Rich has shared with us as we've been going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, and really what I want to focus on here is the, the idea of how rich we are in Christ. And it strikes me in Paul's prayer here that we might not be using all of the riches that are available to us. He's praying that we might be able to be filled with the fullness of God and live out uh, practically what we know to be true uh, doctrinally, I suppose. That we might recognise our riches in Christ and live that out realistically. Uh, a common cited fact is that we use only 1% of our brain's capability. And I think we might do well to ask ourselves how much of our spiritual capability, riches and resources that are available to us in Christ are we using? Our abundant riches in Christ, we're so rich in Christ. Let me give you a fact. Jeff Bezos is a rich man. He's the owner of Amazon. How rich is Jeff Bezos? Well, if you were to break down his $130 billion wealth, it would mean that he could afford to buy a $250 $250,000 house every single day of the year, without a mortgage, obviously, 365 days of the year. That's 365 quarter of a million pound houses every day of the year. For how long? Since the birth of Christ, right up until today, he could do that with his wealth and he would still be a multimillionaire. That is an obscene amount of wealth, isn't it? So now imagine... This multi-billionaire like Jeff Bezos living on the streets, begging other people for tidbits to eat and borrowing shoes and clothes off other people. It would be absurd, wouldn't it? And we have to kind of ask ourselves, is that us spiritually? If we're really as rich spiritually as, as Paul's leading us to believe, is that how we're living spiritually? Are we kind of living off other people's faith? Or are we, are we prayerfully embracing and trying to live out what God's given us to do? By way of another illustration, I watched a film recently called All the Money in the World about J.P. Getty. He's the oil tycoon. It's a really good film, I'd recommend it. But the guy's grandson was kidnapped and he refused to pay the ransom. This guy was obsessed with money and making money. And while his grandson was trapped and held hostage at gunpoint, he was spending all of his millions storing up priceless works of art for himself. And I think, according to the film, the irony is that he even died looking at this painting. 
He had all the riches available to save the person that needed saving, but he refused. He had all those riches in the world and someone else's life depended on him not just clinging to those riches for himself. And again, we have to ask, is that us as Christians? Is that you? Is that me? Are we willing, are we willing to use the riches and resources that we have to serve our, our saviour and to help those being held ransom by the evil one? Are we willing to use our time, our character, our practical skills, our hobbies, our money, our families, our energy, our faith in service of him who is able to do abundantly far more than all we ask or imagine? And as we close, there's no better words of prayer for me to, to pray for us with than Paul's prayer itself. So let's pray. Lord God, for this reason, I bow my knees before you, from whom every family in our church and all around the earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, of your glory, God, that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, so that we, being rooted and grounded in your love, may have strength to comprehend with all of our brothers and sisters around the world what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that we may be, we may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.